Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we're taking a deep dive into a triple murder that took place at the Star of Rock State Park back in 1960, where three women were brutally beaten to death. My client, Chester Weger, was a 21-year-old dishwasher at the Star of Rock Lodge who was arrested for the brutal crimes, convicted, and served over 60 years in prison. He's currently 83 years old and out on parole. We've been making the case on this podcast that Chester Wiega was wrongfully convicted of these horrendous murders. Today, we have another powerful new development to present to you. We have a lot to talk about. Let's begin. It's an unfortunate reality that cold cases generally only grow colder with time. Evidence is lost, memories fade, witnesses die, collective interest wanes, and eventually unsolved crimes become nothing more than local legends told around campfires. Hope of ever really finding answers all but vanishes. But sometimes the truth of what really happened in the past survives in something as simple as a tale told by the old-timer at the end of the bar. A story detailing fateful decisions made years before is told by a man in the winter of his life to a younger man. The younger man then files it away as gossip from a bygone era long before his birth. The story predates his existence and thus can't be relevant to him. He goes on with his life. Decades pass, and that younger man grows old himself and realizes he too may have a tale to tell to someone who will listen. Time and age bring the perspective that the events of the past are not as far removed from us as we may have once perceived them to be. The truth of the past can sometimes live on in the stories told to us that we may not even realize contain answers to questions we never thought to ask perhaps contained within a secondhand story passed from one generation to the next exists the truth of what really happened in St. Louis Canyon on March 14, 1960. Whitney we have been on a roller coaster ride these past few weeks. I made the case for premeditation and multiple offenders in episode five. Last week, we talked about the smoking gun, the Zelensek memo, and the Palmetier brothers. And let me say to everybody, we are still investigating everything we talked about last week. We're investigating that whole issue with the Palmetier brothers, everything we discussed. It's so new. We are still digging and digging into that. But I want to continue this roller coaster ride with another potentially very significant development today that I think is consistent with what we discussed last week about the Palmetier brothers and may likely answer the question of who the kid was who had the bloody overalls in the trunk of a car and was afraid of getting caught. Is your seatbelt fastened? It's, it's, it's buckled. I'm ready. All right, let's get into it. Okay. So I had a person reach out to me on social media. This is prior to us airing episode 
five about premeditation, before episode seven about the Palmetier brothers and the Zelensky memo. And Guy said he had information on the Starvrock murders. You know, uh, I didn't think much about it. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, but I always talk to everybody. I'm always willing to listen. I called him on the phone and couldn't believe what he was telling me. We spoke for an hour. What he told me was riveting. Uh, I, I was kind of stunned. And a lot of what he told me was consistent with my view of the way that I think the crime may have taken place. But after hearing this, I felt like uh, I needed to meet him in person. I needed to hear the story face to face. I needed to see him, feel him. And so I made plans to go visit him. And he's a guy that lives in Hennepin, Illinois, and keeping his identity private for now. But I drove out to his house and I met him face to face and I had him tell me the same story he told me on the phone. And I was there for almost three hours. And I got to tell you, before I get into this story, I'll just say this. I walked away feeling what he said, that he was very credible. It was very heartfelt. Being there face to face and having him tell me the story and the way he told it, I just felt that it was real. I'm going to go through this story now. Do you want to hear it? I, I do. I want to hear it beat by beat. So, and then once we get done, we can kind of talk about, you know, sure. what we think of it and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying, you know, the story, it took him about an hour and a half to tell it to me. So I'm going to give you a, a very, very condensed version, much different than obviously the way he was telling it to me in much more detail and, and much more dramatically. Uh, he's 56 years old. Like I say, he lives in Hennepin, Illinois. He grew up in Depew, Illinois. He was friends with Bobby Rona growing up. You and I know that Rona name, Bobby's dad, was Harold Smokey Rona. Anybody who has followed the Starve Rock murders case over the years, people who live in that area all know the name Smokey Rona. In 1960, he was 25 years old. He was a, a, uh, a young man, a young kid with a long rap sheet, despite only being in his mid-20s. A lot of things like, you know, burglaries and, and I mean, just... All kinds of stuff, kind of like a uh, a local hoodlum, shall we say. So this guy was friends with Smokey Rona's son, Bobby. Talked about growing up with Bobby. Talked about his sister, Wanda, having a crush on Wanda. <laughs> Gave me a lot of details of this of the Rona family. Talked about just childhood stories and things yeah. that had happened. So my point of all that is he clearly knew the Rona family with all the information he gave me about the family and the dynamics so that really passed the test with me. It wasn't somebody just making up the fact that they knew Smokey Rona and his son Bobby and his daughter Wanda. So fast forward, what he said was, so he said he knew Smokey Rona since he was like, you know, 10 years old, 11 years old. Once he turns 21, he begins hanging out in bars, drinking, playing pool, and he would run into Smokey Rona at these bars, who'd also be drinking, hanging out, playing pool, and despite the age difference, they just became friends. They became like drinking buddies, guys who would play pool together, hang out, and drink. He mentioned that Smokey was connected. What he meant by that was he's not actually in the mob, but he's a guy who the mob, you know, mob-type people use to do their dirty work, you know, gets paid to do things, uh, that he was a, a connected guy. All right, so with that context, what he told me was, 
around the mid-1990s. He obviously couldn't be sure about an exact date. So this would have been, if it's the mid-90s, he was born in 1965. He'd have been in his early 30s. He said he went out to Smokey Rona's house in Seatonville, Illinois. He said Smokey had a house in Seatonville, Illinois. He also had a house in Depew, Illinois. And he said they were sitting on the front porch drinking some iced tea. And Smokey Rona said to him, do you want to hear a story? And he says, yeah, sure. Smokey Rona proceeded over the next couple of hours to tell him a story about how the Star of Rock murders went down. You want me to get into this with you now? I, I do. I do. I, I want to know every detail. All right. So this is what he told me. Smokey said that he got a phone call. Bear in mind, it's 1960. There's no cell phone. Somebody's calling your landline. Mm-hmm. And the caller said they had a mutual friend. That's how he got Smokey's phone number and name. And the caller said they wanted Smokey's help. That there was a businessman that wanted his wife killed. The way the guy I spoke to described it was the man owned a company is what he said. Uh-huh. He said Smokey told the guy on the phone he was not going to get involved in killing anyone. But he agreed to organize and plan the murder. And Smokey Rona was to be paid $30,000. So Smokey is agreeing to arrange the murder, but not physically get his hands dirty. Right. He's going to be, I think the way uh, this guy described it, was going to orchestrate it, kind of be the Mm -hmm. mastermind planet. Mm -hmm. The woman to be killed was going to be coming to Starve Rock State Park with two other women. Mm -hmm. And as part of the plan, all three were going to have to be killed. The other two kind of as collateral damage. What's unclear to me is, the way he told the story is, there was one husband who wanted his wife killed. Uh-huh. I'm unclear if the other two husbands knew about this or not. That part's a little fuzzy to me. He did say the other two women were collateral damage. Okay. So the three women were coming to Starve Rock Lodge. The way it was planned out was three men were going to come down from Chicago to kill the three women. The men were mob connected. There were going to be two cars, two getaway drivers, and three men who are going to carry out the killing. So you got two cars and five men. Smokey was to be in you know one of the cars. So actually, I guess you have a total of six. Yeah. Smokey, two drivers, and three men who are going to actually do the killings. Okay, so here's what he said happened. And it's, it's just, it's, I don't know what the right word to use is when I tell this story, because when I tell it, to think that it may have happened this way, it just kind of... Um, uh, it's sad and it's also yeah. kind of just um, scary, you know? Yeah. Um, so what he said was the three men followed the women in St. Louis Canyon. Smokey stayed up top by the getaway cars. Smokey at some point when they got back up said he heard a scream. And one of the guys said, yeah, you know, we, we chased the women and then subdued them. One of the women screamed. He mentioned how they grabbed one of the women in like a strap broke but here's how he said they were killed. This is interesting. Uh, and I'm sorry, when I say the word interesting, I all these comments, I understand this is just absolutely horrible. Yeah. And I don't mean anything I say to be insensitive, but I do think we have to discuss the facts of the case and information that we think you know may be credible. So what he told me was, the way Smokey had planned this was, he was at 
Mussarelli Butcher Shop in Depew, buying some meat, and he saw these butcher bags you used to hold meat. And he came up with the idea of putting the bags over the women's head and suffocating them. That would muffle any screams. You wouldn't have to, you know, shoot anybody, noise from a gun. He decided that was the best way to do it. And he also got butcher string from this Mussarelli's butcher shop in Depew. And that was the method. So what these three men did was chase the women down, subdued them, put the bags over their heads, and then suffocated them. Now, here's what he said. Before I say this, tell me in your medical experience, Mm -hmm. what happens to somebody's eyes when they're asphyxiated or suffocated? Yeah. So when you have someone who's who's been asphyxiated, the eyeballs look very red because you get petechial hemorrhaging. So basically the little blood vessels in and around the eyes burst. And so under the eyes, it's going to look very purple. And then the eyeballs themselves may sometimes appear to bulge and they'll look very, very pink, if not red from the broken blood vessels. So what he said was the women then after they're suffocated had to be beaten about the face to cover up Uh, this evidence of what their eyes would show uh, about the fact they were suffocated, okay? The way he described it to me was Smokey had told him these guys had used a log to beat the women. We'll talk about that when I get done with the story. He said that during the story, uh, at times, Smokey would kind of bow his head, look down, he said Smokey was such, you know, always a tough guy. He'd never really seen that side of him. And then he said that the crime scene was staged to make it look like something different. The women were dragged up into the cave. He made it sound like their clothes would have been pulled up just from the, the act of dragging. But I think there's more to it because you can see their underwear is pulled down too. We can talk more about that. But that's how he said Smokey told him the women were killed, how they were killed. And then he said that, Smokey said he had to get rid of the evidence. So all these guys came back up to where the cars were. They had put down some blankets in the car so that nobody got blood on the car. They drove to some nearby motel. All the guys changed clothes, took showers. Smokey put all these bloody clothes and things, even like the hotel towels, into like a garbage bag and put it in the trunk of the car he was in. And then he said Smokey wanted to burn it all. And I want to talk about this. This is the part I think is very important we're going to come back to. This is, I think, a link to the Palmetier Brothers we'll come back to. He's just telling it to me this way, okay? Yeah. He says, so Smokey put the bloody clothes and all these things in a garbage bag in the trunk of the car. He wanted to burn it all, but he was concerned about like black smoke And he didn't really have a place to burn it. And so he held it, wasn't sure what to do. And then he wound up burning it, I guess, a little bit later in Bureau County. Apparently they had a spring cleanup and they had like a burn pit for people in the town. You could just kind of come put your junk in this burn pit. And Smokey went over to this burn pit in Bureau County, tossed the garbage bags and blankets in there in the burn pile. And that's how they were all burned. And then he also said that Smokey told him, you know, it had been widely reported there was this plane flying overhead. He said that wasn't true. If there had been a plane flying overhead, they all would have noticed. They all would have been very concerned. 
kind of freaked out about it. There was no plane. And then he told me that he 100% believed Smokey Rona in terms of what he was telling him. He said, you know, I thought this was interesting the way he said this. He said, this story meant nothing to me at the time. He said, I was just a punk kid who heard a story from a friend's dad. It just didn't mean anything to him at the time. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't even born in 1960. And I said, why do you think Smokey told this to you? You know, he's like, well, you know, we were, I think he wanted to just get it off his chest. You know, Um, we were close. He trusted me. Smokey told him not to tell anybody, which he never did. And then when, you know, he just reached out to me when he started to hear media about the Starbuck murders more recently. And he kind of connected the dots like, oh my gosh, this is related to the story Smokey Rona told me on his front porch back in the day. And he wanted the truth to be told. So he reached out to me. And that's what led to me talking to him on the phone. And before we kind of break down what he said, there's one other, I think, important detail. So he's telling me that this conversation took place on the front porch of Smokey Rona's house in Seatonville. I'm out there at his house. He's telling me the story. I said, can we, when he gets done, mm-hmm. I said, can we drive by that house, the Smokey Rona's house where we live right now? He's like, sure. We hopped in my car. We drove there from his memory. He's like, take a left turn here, take a right turn here. We got there maybe in 15, 20 minutes. We pull off the road, the side of the road at a house right on Route 6 in Seatonville, Illinois. Mm-hmm. I pull right in front. I stop. He's like, yep, that's the house. There's the front porch. He's explaining differences now, like these bushes weren't there. And, you know, and so then when I got home that night, well, I walked away. Let me say, I walked away like, holy cow, could this have been the way it happened? Yeah. I mean, I just, I just couldn't believe what he was telling me. So when I got home, you know, my first thought was, does he really know Smokey Rona? All right. I've already mentioned how he told me so many details about the family playing with Bobby, Bobby riding some kind of motorbike and hitting barbed wire and getting all these cuts. And so when I got home, I, you can run people in databases, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I run, I ran Harold, the name was Harold Rona. Mm -hmm. And by the way, he told me that Smokey hated the name Harold. He knew his name was Harold. I ran his name in a database and it showed a list of addresses where he had lived. And one of those addresses was the exact house we had driven to in Seatonville, Illinois. So I felt that that was also connected and credible too. And I got to say, he told me the story. It was like an hour and a half. I said almost nothing. Mm-hmm. A couple times I would ask a follow-up question. I was just listening and he was just telling the story nonstop, no pauses, just matter of fact, And it reminds me of something I have said in closing arguments to juries many times. I've used, I like to use Mark Twain quotes and Mark Twain has a famous quote. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. It wasn't like he was trying to remember things. I mean, he was just telling the story. Sure. I mean, there were a couple of times he would pause and say, oh, that's right. In fact, I thought we were done. And he's like, oh, no, no, I didn't finish. And that's when he told me the whole part about burning the clothes in the bureau county burn pit. Okay. So yeah, I got to say, I believe this guy. I believe him. Not everything he told me about the details may be actually correct. There could be a couple reasons for that. One, it could be Smokey Rona 
told him things that weren't exactly correct. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Maybe Smokey Rona did participate, just didn't want to admit it. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the telephone game. You know, it's like somebody tells you a story. Now you're telling a story. 20 plus years have passed. You got some details wrong. I leave room for all of that. Okay. But my point is this. I believe him when he said he had a conversation on Smokey Rona's front porch where Smokey Rona told him he got a call. This woman was to be killed. He planned it. And this is the general way it went down. I believe all that. I, I, I believe all that in my gut and my heart. So Whitney, let's pause here. What do you think about what I've told you so far? So I have, I have two main thoughts. One, what he is saying is making so much sense in light of the other evidence and the rest of the narrative that we have. I guess my big question is, why now? So it's a 30-year span of time between the murders and Smokey Rona telling him this tale. It's now another 30 years until he tells you why. What's your sense of his motivation for sharing this information now? Because it's not like he forgot and just remembered, right? I mean, he's he's been aware of this, but he's been reticent to come forward and tell now because... What he said was when the HBO docuseries came out in December, he saw some some links to that about this docuseries was coming out. He doesn't have HBO, so he never watched it. Mm -hmm. And then he saw me on a podcast talking about the Star of Rock murders, talking about representing Chester Weger, and heard this. And it was like, oh my gosh, this, the way he described it was like the floodgates in his mind open. He's like, this is, this sounds like the case that Smokey Rona told me about 20 plus years ago. And connected the dots. Uh, and basically what he'll say is, you know, he, it just didn't mean anything to him. He didn't care at the time. You know, he's hearing the story, you know, 25 years later. So it's long, it's long gone. And it just, you know, Smokey's telling him not to tell anybody about it as well. You know, Smokey yeah. died in 2006. So that's how he describes it to me. And, and he said it like he was coming forward because he's hearing, you know, all these different rumors and things. And he just wants the truth to be told. He wants to tell his story. And like I said, I you got to see him. You got to meet him. You got to hear it in person. I just, in my gut and in my heart, I believe him. I believe he knew Smokey Rona. I believe Smokey told him his story. And I don't think he's just making up a big Smokey Rona story for his own good. I just, I just don't. I mean, I could be wrong. Obviously, I could be wrong about everything I've said on this podcast. But I think... And we're going to talk about it now. I think there's enough things that he says that are consistent and make sense that also gives it this air of credibility. It's not just the way he told it to me. I think it might be easy, you know, for somebody to make up a short story. So if somebody approached me and said, you know what I heard? I was at a bar and this is what I heard. I heard uh, some guys came down, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's a five minute story. Maybe it's a 10 minute story. Maybe it's a 15 minute story. I think it'd be very hard to do that for an hour and a half, to make up a story for an hour and a half, no pauses, no like just sitting there thinking, just kind of telling you the story very matter-of-factly of like, this is what was told to me with weird details too, yeah. you know? I mean, like got the, uh, got the bags and the string at Muzzarelli's butcher shop in Depew, you know? I mean, like, like that kind of a detail on that. Now you could also argue like, why would he remember that? Who knows, you know? But- that's that's how I feel. That's that's what's in my heart. That's what's in my gut. 
So <laughs> that's all I can tell you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and you know, you had given me some of the some of the facts from his story to to fact check, and and you are correct. I mean, he he does give details that that do completely line up. You know, he he mentions Wanda, he mentions you know addresses, he mentions even that even the deli uh, that you mentioned, Mazzarelli's Deli in Depew. He had even remembered the names of the guys behind the counter, which we checked, and you know, Anthony Mazzarelli ran the deli. I mean, that that lined up as well. So. It is interesting because the details that he's sharing are are minutia that just, you know, back to your Mark Twain point, if you're telling the truth, you don't have to try that hard to remember. Right. It wasn't like he was trying, you know, and let's break down what he said. I think a lot of what he said, it was consistent. There's some things that weren't, but let me start with a link to the Palmetier brothers, which I think is the most important point. And that's why I think I'm going to make the case that I think Smokey Rona is the guy, is the kid. Mm-hmm. with the bloody clothes in the trunk. Smokey Runner was 25 in 1960. Glenn Palmatier was 49. William Palmatier was 55. You can easily call somebody 25 as the kid. It's a kid yeah. to you, <laughs> right? It's It could be your son, right? Yeah. So this is the part I think that, that kind of was like, when I started to listen to this again and, and go over this again, like as like my aha moment. He says this. He says, and again, this is before we had aired the Lois Zelensek episode. So, you know, none of these details were out. I didn't even know any of this. He says, Smokey Rona has all the bloody clothes in a bag in the trunk of the car, all right? Remember, Glenn Palmatier says to William, the kids got the bloody overalls in the trunk of the car. So that jives. Then, this is what's interesting. Glenn Palmatier says to his brother, uh, he doesn't know what to do with them, Okay. This guy tells me that Smokey Rona's got the bloody clothes in the car. He wants to burn them, but he's not sure where or how because he's worried about like black smoke because of what he's going to burn, like the garbage bag and I think like the blankets. So that jives with there being some apprehension and there being a little bit of a pause, right? The bloody clothes don't get thrown out immediately. There's a little bit of a, a lag for some reason. And then... William Palmertier tells Glenn Palmertier, well, just tell him to burn him. That doesn't necessarily answer the question specifically, but mm-hmm. what this guy's telling me Smokey Rona eventually does, not immediately, is he burns them at this burn pit in Bureau County. I thought that was such a freaky coincidence. Are you going to make up a story where you've got Smokey Rona's got the bloody clothes in, a car, in the trunk of a car. There's this hesitation. He wasn't sure what to do with them. He was concerned about the black smoke. And then he winds up uh, a little bit later burning them in this burn pit. Like that just jives in a in a freaky, eerie way yeah. with what Glenn Palmatier is telling his brother William. That that's what really struck me. And just to reiterate to the audience listening, this information was shared with you prior to you ever even coming across the Zelensic memo or yes. knowing about the Palmatier brothers. Yes. So just so we have that timeline clear with people, yes. that this information did not come after the fact. It was known prior. Yeah. I mean, exactly. You know, I didn't even know anything about any of the, the memo and the, yeah. you know, burn the clothes, you know, all that. I just learned out a couple of weeks ago. So that's my first really, really big point that kind of was like, holy cow, that just jives in a really weird small, innocuous way. Like if you're making up a story, all you would say is 
Yeah, and then he got the clothes and, you know, he put them in their and they and they, and they burned them or they threw them out, you know? I mean, like, would yeah. you really be like, well, he had the clothes. He was not sure where to burn them. He was worried about the black smoke. You know, he wasn't sure where to do it. I mean, like, that, that's part of your story if you're making it up. Yeah, he got a municipal announcement that there was going to be a public burn day. And so he drove to this location. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's very detailed. And this is something he told me. I thought, like I said, I thought we were done with this story uh-huh. and we were going to drive by this house in Seatonville where he said Smokey lived. And he's like, no, no, I, I didn't quite finish. And then he told me this part. So I just think the way that was said to me matches up perfectly with what we know Lois Zelensek heard Glenn Palmatier say to William Palmatier. So I think, as I see it here right now, you know, a very likely scenario is Smokey Rona is the kid with the bloody overalls in the trunk of the car who's not sure what to do with them, doesn't want to get caught, and he's told to burn them, which he does. Okay. That just, to me, I just I just can't stop thinking about that. But let me go on to some other points. This is also what he told me is consistent with what I've said on this podcast all along. My personal opinion is the whole evidence in crime scene is more consistent with premeditation involving several people, not a random attack, somebody walking through the woods, Chester Weger, Gerald Nemke, uh, somebody else, just a random, oh, I think I'm going to kill these ladies. What he's saying is you've got two cars, two getaway drivers, three guys who are going to do the killing in Smokey. Let's pause there. If you remember on a prior episode, I talked about and I posted on the website a transcript of an interview with George Spiros from October. What does he say he saw? How many cars? Two. How many men did he say he saw? Five. What about that? Yeah. I mean, that just matches exactly what this guy was telling me. I mean, five men, six men. Okay. Two cars, five men. This just lines up exactly with what George Spiros was saying he saw. Here's another big one. I've always been troubled. We've talked about this. I've always been troubled with why does anybody have to beat these women so many yes. times about the face? Mm-hmm. You can beat them and kill them with with a couple blows, maybe a few more. Why do you have to do such damage to their faces? And what he said about covering up the evidence of the asphyxiation and evidence from your eyes, I thought was consistent and actually made sense about why somebody might do that. That for me is probably, if what he is saying is true, that answers the biggest question that I have had this entire case is to destroy their faces hinted to me at, well, there's got to be rage, but who, who's got enough rage, you know, in a random attack doesn't bring with it that level of rage, but what he's describing where it's it's a strategic method of obliterating evidence makes so much sense because it's overkill. Yeah. If you have not seen these crime scene pictures, maybe don't look at them, but they they remind me of like some of the photos of like the last victim of Jack the Ripper. I mean, their faces are destroyed. And why would you do that unless you have an agenda and what he's saying makes so much sense on that front. Absolutely. And I've got a few more points. It also explains, I always felt this was a staged crime scene. Mm -hmm. The women are carefully laid out, their legs spread apart. There's no evidence of a sexual assault. 
it always looked to me like it was staged to kind of make it look like something it wasn't, which is exactly what he said Smokey Rona said. They then took the women up into the cave and staged this so that nobody, I mean, nobody was thinking the women were targeted Mm -hmm. or one particular woman was targeted. It just looked like this random attack and the killers accomplished their purpose by doing that. It just threw the scent off of exactly what they had done, this premeditated act. And I also think it's consistent, I don't say this lightly, with you know somebody wanting their wife killed. Mm-hmm. I have noted that Miss Murphy had these odd things to her, the missing fingertip, the soiled clothing, the vaginal injury. It's consistent with somebody being kind of singled out with mm-hmm. vengeance. And again, it's not just me saying this, you know, Bill Jansen in those newspaper articles is saying Mr. Murphy should be investigated to see if he had enemies, particularly in the Moline area. So I'm just reporting what he was reporting based on his mm-hmm. lengthy investigation. So I think it's consistent with that. So there are a lot of things, Whitney, that line up with the crime scene, with the evidence, and also with what the Palmateer brothers were saying during that phone call overheard by Lois Selensic. I, I just... It's like wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm I'm just kind of in a state of shock over it. Like, could this have been the way it actually happened? Are we actually, Whitney, connecting the dots here now? I mean, it seems like every week we're making these giant leaps forward. And I feel like this one, I get people are gonna be skeptical about this, perhaps. I get it. All I can say is, you know, you have to meet this person in person like I did and spend mm-hmm. a few hours with him. So what do you think about everything I just said? just now. For me, I feel like it's just incredibly plausible. I feel like it is an incredibly plausible explanation that that answers finally for me these questions about why why are their faces so so badly damaged? Why? Well, this is the other question I've had is is you know, when I read the autopsy reports, uh, a couple of those women were roughly my size and weight and and I'm not a small girl and to move them would require brute strength. And so his description of there needing to be at least three guys down there in the canyon moving these women is the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, how treacherous that canyon is in the wintertime and to move those bodies, you know, to, to move lifeless bodies in the snow up into that position, it just, it has to be more than one person and three makes a whole lot of sense. You know, and let me just make a couple other points. And we got a lot more to say about about the last two weeks. I mean, we're not done, but we'll wrap this one up. First of all, you know, him saying that Smokey was connected, these guys were connected. I did a little digging around just this last week on like the mob in Mm -hmm. the Illinois Valley. You know, I didn't grow up in that area. I don't really know that area. I came across a book. I've got it in front of me. It's called Capone's Cornfields, The Mob in the Illinois Valley by an author, Dan Cherney. And I've just started kind of skimming through here, but it's telling stories of various mobsters coming to the Illinois Valley and things that happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So there's definitely a record, a documented record of a lot of mob activity and people in this area in the decades around the murder. I wasn't really aware of that. I was like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah. What's also interesting to me about this is that, like you said at the top of the episode, if you're at all versed in the Star Rock murder saga, you know the name Smokey Rona. But if we go back to the police records, his name's swirling constantly as a suspect, but he's not brought in and questioned. He's not polygraphed. 
He's the most noticeable and conspicuous name in the investigation to never actually seemingly be investigated. That's an excellent point. I, I, you know, that I hadn't even thought of that. It's an excellent point. I've seen polygraph reports of dozens yeah. and dozens and dozens of people, reports of interviews. I haven't seen anything like that with Smokey Rona. Nothing. And if you, know, if you remember in the HBO docuseries, they have a former state's attorney, Brian Town, makes kind of a joke like, yeah, back in LaSalle, if anything, you know, any kind of crime happened, you'd go to Smokey Rona first because, you know, he yeah. was kind of like connected with everything. So, I mean, he should have been just based on his rap sheet and who he was. He should have been uh, on the short list of suspects back at the time. And I don't see anything to indicate he was taken seriously as a suspect. No. Two more points. And then we'll we'll kind of save the rest for next week. I thought it was interesting, too, and I thought this gave this guy some credibility. You know, in the HBO docuseries, Smokey Rona's sister, Alice Rona, says that Smokey, like, you know, before he died, like on his in the hospital or whatever, told her he was involved in these murders, was paid to do these murders. So he doesn't believe that. He's like, <laughs> there's no way Smokey would have told Alice about any of this. I don't buy that. I just thought that was interesting. It's not like he's saying, hey, you know, Alice Rona's got the same story I do. You know, this all jives. He's actually saying what she's saying is not the truth because Smokey would have never told her. I just throw that out there because I thought that gave him a little sense of credibility with me. And one last point. He also said some things that are not consistent with what we have been talking about, which I think we have to recognize. You know, he said that the women were beaten with a log to cause all these injuries. You know, we talked on here about getting a newspaper article saying there was a report, a report from the crime lab within days mm -hmm. that the log found at the crime scene could not have been the murder weapon. It was rotted and, you know, would have broken. Now, maybe there was a different log. I don't know. I'm just saying, though, I mean, that part, you know, doesn't jive. So I'm open to the fact that maybe not everything is exactly right. But like I said at the top, I believe in my heart that what this guy is saying is true, that Smokey Rona told him this, this story. I believe Smokey Rona was involved. And based on what we've talked about today, I think the most likely person, the kid with the bloody overalls on the trunk of the car is Smokey Rona. That all makes sense to me. This just dovetails with yeah. everything we talked about last week with the Palmateer brothers. And so, I mean, I just, I'm sitting here just kind of overwhelmed with emotions on how much progress we have made just in the last couple of weeks. So I want everybody out there to know, we really appreciate all the listeners. We've had such an incredible response. People engaged with us, reaching out to us. And I want people to know we are still investigating. All this is new. So we are still investigating Lois Selensek, you know, her memo, the Palmateer brothers, Smokey Rona. Um, this is kind of happening in real time now, which I, I was not expecting with our little old podcast. We were like <laughs> the little train that could. I was not expecting this to kind of just take on this momentum that it has, but I'm so excited that it has. And there's going to be a lot more to talk about, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh, guaranteed. And then anyone out there uh, who's written into us, thank you so much. And just so you know, we read everything and follow up on your leads. Yep. So please keep your your suggestions, your thoughts, your commentary coming because it's it's gold. It's invaluable. I'll say one more thing about that. I used to host a local TV show in Chicago called Case File Chicago, 
where we would try to solve unsolved murders. And I would always say, no information is too small. You might think this is a tiny little piece of information. It's probably not important. I don't know if it's relevant. You know what? I'm all ears. I would love to hear it, no matter how small it might be, no matter how crazy it might sound. If you know something or heard something, reach out. Please reach out. We need your help. We need your help. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Whitney, um, <laughs> I got to take my seatbelt off and um, <laughs> just kind of stretch. But like I said, a lot more to talk about. And tune in next week. We're going to have another episode you're not going to want to miss. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I really enjoyed sharing my conversation about the Smokey Rona story. I found it so riveting and so important. We'll be back next week, next Thursday, with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. If you want even more information, please visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com, where each week we're posting new documents, photos, and newspaper articles. If you know anything about the Star of Rock Murders, please email us. We would love to hear what you have to say. No information is too small, like we said. And if you know anyone that you think was wrongfully convicted, reach out. I'd love to hear about that as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, which I hope you did, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. That really means a lot to us to see those favorable reviews. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis, sound designed by Studio D, Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy, and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.